screen behind me. If you're interested, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. As we dive in, we're, we're diving into the middle of a thought and remembering last week that we talked about that our, our identity is not found in our accomplishments, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ with that heart and that mind. Verse 10 says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am ready and am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in God, in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you that now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame which uh, with minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom will transform our lowly bodies and be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is God's word to us this morning. Let's keep it in mind as we continue worshiping him. Done for us that you have made yourself known to us. We can trust that you are real, that you exist, and that you care for us. This is an amazing thing. And so, God, we come before you now. We lay aside everything else that has been going on in our lives, whether it's good, exciting, or whether it's really tough. So, God, we do come before you now. Lay down our lives. Ask for you to come in, to fill us, to guide us, to speak to us. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. We couldn't help but be changed as we see you more clearly. So God, we give you this time. We praise you now. Thank you for Jesus Christ and the cross. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, team. We're going to continue worshiping God as we do every Sunday, uh, having spoken to him and sung to him, saying, sung. I never get those right. Anyway. We're not going to listen, which is another form of worship to hear what our God has to say to us and bring ourselves together under it. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to take them and open to the New Testament book of Philippians chapter 3. Uh, it's a funny-sounding term to modern American readers. Uh, the Philippians were people who lived in Philippi. There was a church there, a city called Philippi. In the first century, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to this church and in the process communicates some things that Christians need to know at all times in all churches, including us. Uh, this morning is part two of three sermons in the New Testament book of Philippians that we're using to kind of kick off our new year of ministry by focusing as a church 
on the Bible's teachings about who we, as God's people, are called to be. Who has God called us to be in the midst of the world around us? Sort of the theme that's driving our look in these three sermons is that the gospel anchors the life of a Christian in some important ways. Last Sunday, we looked at how the gospel anchors us in terms of our core identity as opposed to other things that people in our culture around us try to ground their identities in. We display the gospel by being a people whose identity is anchored in the truth of Christ. This morning, we're going to look at another way the gospel anchors us. It anchors us uh, in our life's ambition. There's a big topic for you. What is your life's ambition? What are, you, what are you aiming for? What is your life all about? Everything that we are as people and everything that we do day in, day out, week in, week out, we, we're sort of headed somewhere. And the question this morning is, where's that somewhere? For some of us, that somewhere has been pretty well thought through. We, we know exactly what our goals are. We know exactly who we're trying to be. And, and we're, we're kind of putting everything into being that person or achieving those goals. For other people, we haven't thought about it that much. But whether we've thought about it or not, our lives are headed somewhere. And the gospel actually changes that when a person comes to faith in Christ. That's what we're going to see this morning. In fact, we ended last week uh, with the Apostle Paul, who's writing this, talking about how his, not only is his identity grounded in the gospel, but because of that, Everything he has is reaching toward experiencing this new gospel life that Jesus gives to him. He said that back in Philippians. We're going to start in verse 12 this morning, but we really need to back up uh, just a couple verses to get a little bit of a running start, as it were, because in verse 12, he begins by saying, not that I have already obtained this. Well, what's the this? He's been talking about the this. The this, you back up to verse 10. He says that his ambition is that I might know him, that's Jesus, and the power of his resurrection. There's a whole power that brings life from death. That's what his ambition is. That's what I want to experience. As a result, he says, I want to share in the sufferings of Jesus. I want to become like Jesus in his death so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. That sets the stage for this morning because the Apostle Paul is saying, as a Christian, my ambition, my life's goal is to experience this resurrection, to experience the truths that I believe are true from the Bible. I want to experience them. That's my life's ambition. He's going to unpack that for us this morning. There are really two short paragraphs in this passage this morning, Philippians chapter 3 from verse 12 down to 21. That's where we'll be this morning. Two short paragraphs, and they form two simple points for our uh, message this morning. The first point is that the ambition of the Apostle Paul's life, we are to strive, he says, for this good life that God has already guaranteed to us. Secondly, he's going to tell us the best way to go about doing that. So we start right away in chapter, tw- uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Not, he says, that I have already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now this word perfect is probably better understood as the word complete. He says, I, in other words, I haven't arrived yet. That's what he's saying. 
I haven't arrived yet. I don't look at myself, the Apostle Paul is saying, as somebody who is, is like the perfect Christian. I've experienced everything Jesus has to offer me. I have not yet arrived. And so what I do is I put everything in my life toward experiencing more and more of the resurrection life of Christ. Now what he is talking about here is that he recognizes he's, he's not there yet. On the one hand, because of Jesus, he says, I have this new life that we saw him talk about earlier in chapter 3. We looked at that last Sunday. I used to build my identity on my religious performance. And he says, that's garbage to me now. I found something much better in Jesus. Jesus has given me new life. And yet on the other hand here, he is saying, I'm striving to attain this new life that I've already been given. I've been given new life, but I don't fully have new life. This is one of those tensions that you run into over and over and over again in the New Testament. I have new life as a Christian, but I don't yet fully have new life. What's going on here? This is explained probably nowhere more clearly, although it comes up a lot in the Bible. But in the New Testament book of Ephesians, uh, which is just one book right before Philippians, the Apostle Paul, same author, is writing, and he says this in chapter 1, verses uh, 13 and 14 of the book of Ephesians. In Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, God's Spirit lives in the life of a repentant Christian. That's what he's saying. God's Spirit comes and lives in you. And now look at what he says about that. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of God's glory. So here's what he's saying. For a Christian, the Holy Spirit received into my life is a down payment of sorts. That's literally the language the Bible uses. This is a down payment on the ultimate inheritance that I will achieve one day, either when I die and enter eternity or when Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. When that happens, as a Christian, I have the promise that I will experience eternal life. That's not just life that goes on forever. That is a quality of life, life that is free from corruption. My body will be free from illness and disease. My heart will be free from sickness and a heartache from broken relationships. My soul will be free from the corruption of sin and immoral living and attitudes and behavior. I will never have to worry about that again. And as a result, I will be in the presence of God Almighty face to face, enjoying a depth of relationship with him that is like no other. That's a pretty cool inheritance, is it not? This is the gospel. If you are a Christian, this is what the Bible says, that's in your future. And you didn't earn that. Jesus earned it for you. He gives it to you as a gift when you repent and embrace him as your Lord and Savior. That life will happen someday. But now here's the cool thing. So, so what do we do in the meantime? I mean, I'm, I'm not there yet. I still live in a world that is not free from sin, hardly. I live in a world that is not free from heartache, definitely not. We live in a broken, hurting world. We still have the world, the flesh, and the devil, as the Bible puts it, conspiring against the life of Christ in us. So as Christians, what do we do? Do we just hold tight and say, Jesus, come back soon, or take me home? Which is weird, because that almost sounds suicidal, and suicide is not good. So like, what, what do we do with this? It's a weird kind of tension we live in. You know what the Bible says? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We live in this weird tension where we have this perfect life to look forward to. We don't experience it now, but we have been given a down payment. 
When God's Holy Spirit moves into your life, this is very significant. He says what's happening is God is taking, as it were, a piece of that future perfect existence. Not just kind of like something that looks like it. This is a piece of the real thing, the the spiritual life of God himself, and he's putting it into your life and my life. We're getting a small part of the real thing even now to experience as a relationship with him. And so as we're back to Philippians chapter 3 then, what he is saying is, I haven't attained this perfect life yet. I, I haven't died yet. Jesus hasn't come back yet. That life is in front of me, but it is my ambition in life to experience as fully as I possibly can this new life that God has put in me by his spirit. So in the meantime, what do we do? Do we just say, goodness, thank you, Lord, I've I've got the Holy Spirit, hopefully I'll try to just hang on until heaven, and in the meantime, try to live my life as best I can. No, actually, he says it's far more active than that. We're moving on in verses 13 and 14. He says we strive for it. We strive for it. We, We reach for it. We strain for it. Everything in our life proactively is oriented as Christians toward experiencing this new life we have in Christ, even though it's only a down payment, to the fullest we can possibly experience it. He uses some very vivid analogy, uh, vivid language in verses 13 and 14. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, by the way, in the context, that's his old life of relying on himself. He's not so much referring to past failures or, or individual sins. He's talking about this, this determination to become a perfect person on my own through my own behavior. He says, that life is gone. I'll leave that behind. And instead, I press on toward what lies ahead of me. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This, this straining forward, pressing on language is is vivid, it's intense, it's athletic language. I mean, the, the image is almost uh, that of a, a marathon runner who is sort of, you know, totally depleted, maybe. The Olympic Games, you're running the marathon. This is the big deal you've been training for, you've been hoping for, for four years, once-in-a-lifetime shot, 26 miles in, and you just got nothing left in the tank. But you look out, And just a couple of tenths of a mile away, there's the finish line. And you might win. And so you do anything you can to dig down as deep as you possibly can to find something you may not have even known was there to push yourself across and win that gold medal. That's what he's saying. I'm reaching down. I'm digging deep. I want to experience this new life of Christ. Now, in some ways, it is like a marathon race or an athlete seeking to achieve a prize. That's the language he's using here. But, of course, in other ways, what the Bible is talking about is kind of different from an athlete seeking to win a race or a prize. Because in this case, the prize isn't a gold medal. It isn't fame. It isn't notoriety. It is this perfect heavenly life that will be ours when we are raised from the dead to a new, sinless, incorruptible existence for the glory of God, to be in relationship with the God who made us for all eternity. Our inheritance, as it was described in the book of Ephesians a moment ago, our inheritance is not a pile of money or a fancy yacht. It's not a thing that you get to have. It is an entire experience of being and living 
in relationship with God. And so in this sense, he says, we strive for what we already have, which is kind of weird, right? Verse 16, he says, let us hold true to what we have attained. That's our goal as Christians, he's telling us. Let us hold true to what we have attained. We've already attained it. We already have it. So strive to hold true to it. Which is kind of weird. Think about the gold medal analogy again a minute ago. I just described the end of the race. What at the beginning? Could you imagine if all the athletes line up and right before the gun goes off, somebody taps that marathon runner on the shoulder and says to her, oh, by the way, you already got the gold medal. You already won. It's already yours. Ready? Set? Wait a minute. (laughs) If it's already mine, why run the race? Right? Why beat my body to a pulp, as it were, out on this race course and, and expend myself to achieve something if I already have it? This is another one of these tensions in the Bible, and this passage of Scripture is dealing with it directly. I mean, this raises this important question. Does the guarantee of eternal life that the gospel promises us, and it does promise us that, if I repent from my sins and embrace Jesus Christ as my God and King and live for Him, I am guaranteed this eternal life because He earned it for me. It's guaranteed. It's in front of me. Does the guarantee of it demotivate us from living for Jesus now? I mean, if it's already guaranteed, why would you strive or sacrifice or reach to have it? You already have it. It's guaranteed. So chill out, relax, and wait till the day that you receive this inheritance. You see, what the gospel is telling us is that we're all sinners. That was the whole point of of the earlier part of the chapter that we saw last week. The Apostle Paul says, I used to try to be as much of a non-sinner as I could be, and I realized that's that's totally a waste of time. I'm a sinner. I can't get away from it. Everybody else is. We may sin in different ways. We all sin. Every human being is justly under the condemnation of a perfectly holy God. That's where we start. Fortunately, that's not where the story ends. The Bible goes on to say that God fixed this problem for us because he came to be one of us as the man, Jesus Christ. And this God-man, God in human flesh, went to the cross and he died in our place. When he did that, he was paying the penalty of our sin for us as an act of pure grace, hugely costly to him, costs me nothing because he paid the debt for me. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's the central message of the whole Bible. So now the Bible says if you embrace Jesus Christ for who he is, he is God, he is king, he calls the shots, you submit everything to him, what happens is his uh, sacrifice pays for your sin penalty, and you and I can now, as a result of him, experience the perfect life of heaven that God intended us to experience from the beginning. It's guaranteed. But if I've repented and embraced Jesus Christ as my Savior and this perfect life is guaranteed and I I don't have any risk of losing it because I never earned it in the first place, then in what sense can the Apostle Paul now urge us to reach for it or strive for it as if it's a gold medal we need to go win? How are we to understand this? You see, it's different with God. 
This is where the analogy breaks down a little bit because what we're talking about with God is not, as we said, a gold medal. What we are talking about is perfect joy in a perfect relationship with a perfect God for all eternity. There's absolutely nothing that can compare with that. The very best experiences you and I have had in this life, the, the happiest moments of, of, of greatest joy and deepest satisfaction are only tiny little shadows that are pointing us back to the real source of ultimate joy and ultimate satisfaction that will never go away, and that is to be in this relationship with Jesus. When we understand what the Bible is saying is our inheritance, we realize it is this perfect joy and perfect relationship. That is so compelling that for a person to experience that, once you get a taste of that, you can't not reach and strive for it. And actually, I think we understand this even experientially more than it might appear to be on the surface. On the surface, it looks a little weird. Why do you strive for something you already have attained? But when we look at it a different way, suddenly it makes sense because we understand the joy of being in relationship. Here's an example of this. Um, I had the opportunity to travel to uh, East Africa, South Sudan, many times when my daughter was growing up and do short-term mission trips. And so she sort of grew up around the stories of, of dad going off to South Sudan for a couple of weeks every uh, six or, or, or 12 months or so and coming back with these pictures and these stories. Uh, some African people traveled here to Oregon. She got to meet them. I mean, she just grew up with these visions of doing ministry in Africa. She fell in love with Africa before she had ever left our zip code, right? So she wants to go to Africa. Well, three years ago, I had the opportunity to take her. She was only 15 at the time, to take her to South Sudan, along with myself and a couple other members of our church here on a short-term mission team. So here I am taking my 15-year-old daughter to a far-off rural place of the most extreme poverty that you've ever seen or heard of, and a place that was frankly somewhat dangerous. There had been um, some political instability and some tribal infighting that was brewing. Tensions were rising and we almost canceled the trip and we're talking with our hosts over there. We all agreed and decided like, no, we're going to go ahead and do this. I mean, there's a calculated risk, but the gospel's important. We believe it's wise and so we're going to go do it. Now, so my daughter and I left and we went on this trip. And my wife uh, was 100% behind us going because she's a courageous lady and because she believes in the gospel going to the ends of the earth and because she believes in exposing her kids to the importance of living and serving Jesus. And so she was clearly nervous, but she was 100% behind us leaving. And it was natural that she's nervous. I mean, here's her 15-year-old daughter and her stupid husband who better take care of this kid, you know? I'm sure she felt that sometimes at least. And, and off we went for two weeks. Well, as we traveled, I had the opportunity to connect, uh, find internet connections here and there along the journey. And when I did, I would, you know, write an email or, you know, maybe attach it, take a picture of our team and attach it to the email and say, here's what's going on. And I would send it to her and say, hey, you know, get, get this out to the church so people can pray and know where we're at. And so periodically while we were gone, she would get these emails from us. She never really knew when they were coming in because I never knew when I would be able to send one. But you can bet that every email that came in while we were gone, she would drop everything she was doing to go read that email and reread it 
and reread it, you know, to ponder every word. If there was a picture, to study the picture because it gave her a sense of that's, that's where they are. They're, they're well, they're, they're healthy. This is what they're doing. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. In a sense, even though we were on the other side of the world, these emails gave her a little bit of a connection with us, what we were doing and people that she loved. And so it wasn't one of these deals where, you know, she like goes to the gym and she comes home afterwards and you know, you're all kind of messy, you want to take a shower and she notices an email came in while she was gone and she says, yeah, yeah, but I'm going to take a shower. I got stuff to do. I'll read it tonight or tomorrow, whatever. The email's not going anywhere. I'll read it when I get around to it. No. It's like, forget the shower, forget the chores. Everything goes aside because I'm going to make room to connect with my family in any way I possibly can because they're so far away. It's the same thing when we returned. You know, we finally got back to Portland. Our plane landed. At that point, our return home and our reunion was virtually guaranteed. So she could easily have said, I suppose, yeah, I'm going to put on a pot of tea, put on a movie, and I'll just hang out till they show up. They'll find their way home eventually, you know. I mean, I'm going to see them again. There's no rush here. I'll just enjoy stuff. I got stuff to do, and I'll see them when I see them. No. She's like, I'm driving to the airport. I'm there an hour early. You know, I'm not even circling in the arrivals area. I'm parking the car, paying the money, walking all the way to get as close to the gate as I can until the guy with the uniform says, lady, if you take another step, I'm going to arrest you. <laughs> stop. Okay, I'll stop here. But she's, you see, she's reaching. She's straining. I want to get as close as I can, as soon as I can, the very moment I could put my arms around him and welcome home. That's what I want to do. Guys, here's a question. Was she that intent to see us because she was afraid that, gee, if I don't show up at the airport, they may never come home and I'll just never be in relationship with them again? No, of course not. She wasn't straining to get the relationship. She was straining to experience as much of the relationship that she already has with us as soon as she possibly could because we'd been apart. You reach and strive to experience a joyful relationship not because you're afraid you're going to lose it, but because you can't wait to experience it. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying about our Christian life. It can become so easy as Christians to say, wow, I don't exactly know what heaven's going to be like, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be pretty good. <laughs> so thank you, Lord, for that, and it'll be great when I get there, whatever that means. So cool. Well, in the meantime, I got life to live, so you know, I just kind of got stuff to do, and we'll enjoy that when we get there. When that's the mindset we're in with our Christian faith, I think the Bible would suggest to us we don't really fully understand what we've been given here. We haven't experienced it yet, because when you experience perfect joy in a perfect relationship with a perfect God, you can't help but say, I want every bit of that that I can as soon as possible. That's what I reach, and that's what I strive for. The Apostle Paul says, this is what we should be doing. Verse 15, let all of us who are mature think this way. He says, this is how growing, maturing Christians learn to think. Their life's ambition is to experience as much of the life of Christ now as I possibly can. We titled the sermon this morning, Be True to Your New Self. We like to say in our culture, be true to yourself, which usually means live consistent with how you feel. The Bible says, actually, that's, that's not far off the mark, but there's one change. Live consistently with who you really are, whether you're feeling that way now or not. God has given you this life if you're a Christian. Live to experience that life. Let us hold true to what we have attained. 
So that's our first point. What is the ambition of a Christian? To everything in life brought into submission to this masterful, glorious ambition of experiencing the resurrection life of Christ now as much as possible that we've been promised. Now that leads to an important question, which is also the second point of this passage. What does that look like? What does that look like? What does that mean? You talk about such a big concept, like every aspect of my life sort of brought into submission to this goal. Okay, what does that look like daily, practically? How do we do this? One of the interesting things to me about this passage as it continues on in verse 17 is what's not there. What's not in the next couple of verses is a list from the Apostle Paul of examples of what it might look like if a Christian was putting every area of life into submission to Jesus. He doesn't say, you know, for example, put your time into submission to knowing Jesus, and that might mean you do this, this, and this. Put your money into submission to knowing Jesus, which means you might handle your money this way, this way, and this way. Put your relationships into submission to Jesus. Put your identity into submission to Jesus, which means it might be... He doesn't give us a list. Now, the reason I find that interesting is that as a writer, the Apostle Paul does give us lists with some regularity. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know what I'm talking about. The Apostle Paul is responsible for writing many of the books of the New Testament, and he includes a lot of lists. There are lists in the Bible, for example, of spiritual gifts. Two or three different lists in different places. He never tells you what all the spiritual gifts are, but he gives us a list so we'll understand what a spiritual gift is and what kind of thing he's talking about. And then he sort of says that list will get you started. You can fill in the rest on your own. There are other lists of sins that will keep a person from the kingdom of God if they let that sin rule their life. And sometimes those lists are quite long. He may list eight or nine or ten different kinds of sins. Not that there's only ten sins. It's just a representative list so that we'll understand the kind of thing he's talking about and we'll be able to figure out the rest. He even lists the fruit of the Spirit in the New Testament book of Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience. Not that that's all of the results of having God's Spirit in your life, but he gives us a list that helps us understand the kind of thing he's talking about. So I wouldn't be surprised if he said you've got to bring all your life into submission to this great goal of knowing Jesus. Now, here's a list of some things that that might look like so that we could start to figure out what he was saying. But there's no list here. Instead, what he gives us, he does address that question. What does this look like? What are we supposed to do with this exhortation? But his answer is really direct. You know what he says? I don't know how to live this out practically. He says, go find some mentors. Go find some mentors. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on other people, presumably in your own church, who also walk according to the example that you have in us. Us is referring to himself and the other people, church leaders who are with him. What he says is, if you want to know what it means for you as a Christian to bring more of your life into submission to this great goal of knowing Jesus, then find other men and other women who are doing this at least as well as you are, if not maybe better than you are, and get yourself in their orbit. 
Spend time with them as much as possible. Get around them, kind of rub shoulders with them so that they can rub off on you. It's in the process of doing that that you will encounter many areas of your life that you can bring more fully into submission to the great ambition of knowing Jesus. Find these people, he says. Spend time with them. Watch how they live their lives. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. Ask them questions. Hey, when you were dealing with this situation in your family life, and I know you've told me that you had this issue in your family, how did you handle that? Like, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? And how did you respond to your feelings? And just let them talk. And what happens is invariably as they're talking, I'm thinking about, I've experienced a similar situation in my own life, and I didn't respond that way. Wow, they saw it that way? I wonder why they saw it that way. I'm getting a whole new perspective. Just by listening to you describe how you walked with Jesus through a specific aspect of your own life. When we do, we will find ourselves imitating the people around us. And that's one of the most effective tools for learning. And it's hardwired into us as people. Paul unashamedly says, imitate me. Not because he thinks he has it all together. He just told us earlier he doesn't have it all together. But he is pursuing Jesus. He says, I can be a role model for you. Other people can be role models for you. Find those role models. Find those mentors, other Christians, and imitate them. In fact, it'll happen naturally. Imitation is one of the most powerful forms of learning and life transformation. I had a personal experience with this many years ago. I mentioned going to South Sudan a number of times when my kids were little. The very first trip I ever took, never been to Africa before, we went with a group of people where we were training pastors in a very rural uh, and poverty-stricken area. These are most of the times young men who have very little formal education and almost no theological education. They didn't really know the Bible at all, nor had they received none to very, very little training on what it meant to be a pastor or a church leader. But they were the only guy there, tag, they were it. And so here they are appointed the pastor of a church of, of maybe several dozen people or in some cases a few hundred people. And, and they're supposed to lead them. They didn't know what to do. South Sudan is a place where there weren't Bible schools around. It was too war-torn. And they didn't have the financial means to get over to Uganda or Kenya or other places where they could receive training. So we were bringing the training to them. One of the things that we were told, I was really glad they told us this before we left, the people who were working with us and hosting us in Africa, um, they told us not to bring things like our uh, portable projector. Our church had a portable projector. It would have been very easy to carry. And, you know, you throw it up on a wall or hang up a sheet and, and you'd use PowerPoint slides, right? Because you always use PowerPoint when you teach, right? There we go. It's wonderful. We do <laughs> using it right now. We do it every Sunday. I mean, it's just... It's just like breathing. We don't even think about it. Like, yeah, having the visuals are really helpful. Yeah, they said, yeah, leave your, you know, if you want to bring your laptop for your own notes or whatever, that's fine. But when you're up front teaching, leave the laptop and the projector aside. And we're like, why? And they said, because if you bring a laptop and a projector, they will pick up the message. They will get the impression that in order to be an effective pastor and an effective teacher of the Bible, they need a projector and an American laptop. We thought, really? That's not in my lesson plan. Like, I'm trying to teach these guys how to be pastors, and I have all sorts of points, and I didn't say anything about technology. And so that's the point. They're not just going to learn the things you're explicitly teaching them. They're also going to imitate the way you teach. And they're going to learn probably more from that than they are from your outlines. Well, I was really glad they told us that, because they said, watch out, these guys are going to imitate you. Well, when we got there, boy, howdy, did they imitate us. 
I mean, it's, it was a new experience for me, so it struck me. Like we would, you know, I'd teach a session or whatever, and then sometimes we'd break these guys down into groups and say, okay, now you take a session, you go up and teach, and we're going to give each other feedback. I mean, some of the stuff, just trying to give them role-playing practice and that kind of stuff. And it was so interesting to watch these, like, Sudanese guys get up there, and, like, they would, they would mimic my mannerisms. Like, I'm, I'm partly Italian, so I talk with my hands, you know, you got two arms and two vocal cords. That's what God gave people to talk. And so, like, these guys are running around. They're talking with their hands. We had notebooks that we had given them with notes in it. So, you know, they got their notebook. They all had pens, and they all had a Bible. So I'm, I'm okay, I'm going up front. I got a notebook. I got a pen. I got a Bible. I don't have anything else. And I'm like, I'm holding my notebook in a certain way. I, I didn't even think about it. And I'm walking around because I walk around, and that's just what I do. I didn't even think about it. And I put it down. I get this guy up to teach, and he's holding his notebook the exact same way. And he's walking around and he's kind of trying to raise his voice at certain points like I do when I'm making a big point or lower it at other places. And it was just so funny because you realize like, that's not you. It's not natural. It's like that time as parents, you understand this, like you've got your little kids and they start, you know, they start mimicking phone conversations with their little dolls and then they start talking like you. And you're like, oh my word, I don't seriously sound like that, do I? And you realize... Yeah, they're getting that from you. I and mean, that's what this was like. I'm looking at these guys going, is that really what I look and sound like when I teach? Yeah, probably. Sorry. I just, it's what you guys have to deal with. It struck me so much that when I got back from that trip, I remembered initially thinking, wow, learning by imitation is obviously a huge part of African culture. I mean, like, that's just, that's who they are. They learn by imitating. That's an African cultural thing. And then I started thinking about it. And I started realizing, I don't think that's an African cultural thing, actually. I think it's a human thing. It was really obvious to me in Africa because the culture was different, and so it was just really clear to me what the differences were. But even when I got back and, and I was in a culture I was more familiar with, and so you just kind of assume things, you don't pay attention. Well, I started paying attention, and I realized people imitate each other all the time. People that we look up to, we constantly imitate. Children certainly learn almost everything they learn by imitation. That's why British people sound cool and Southerners sound weird. <laughs> I mean, like, how do you learn to form your vowels in the, not just the English language, but how to speak? You know, you imitate the adults around you. But it's not even just kids, is it? It's adults. I've caught myself imitating guys that I look up to. I've literally had times where I'll be in the middle of a sermon, just like I am right now, and, and I'll say something, there'll be a particular phrase I use or a way that I say it, and the minute it comes out of my mouth, I realize, that was from like Tim Keller, because I listen to a lot of his stuff, and I admire him as a preacher, and, and I'm like, I, it's not like I, I heard him say something, and I wrote it down, I said, well, that was good, I'm going to say that on Sunday, I wasn't even trying, I don't even remember when he said it, it was probably months ago that I heard him say that, I forgot about it but it became part of my makeup and at a certain time it just came out because I catch myself imitating people that I respect and look up to. The point of all of this is that this is God designed and God intended. We learn best and change most not by memorizing rote lists of rules and applying the sort of the brute force of our will to trying to obey those rules. We learn best by letting the lives of other people rub off on us and they influence us at a deeper level. So the Apostle Paul says in verse 17, you want to know what it looks like 
to bring every aspect of your life into this great ambition of knowing Jesus. If you're a Christian and you say, yeah, I need to do more of that than I'm doing. How do I do that? Where do I start? He says, find some mentors. Find some mentors. Find some men and some women who are doing this at least more than you. Spend time with them. By the way, that also means it's important to choose wisely. Not everybody who is in a church or who claims to believe the gospel is necessarily a good candidate for imitation. In verse 18, he says, For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. The group that he's referring to in that first century church is not really clear. It probably refers back to the group he was dealing with in verse 4. We saw them last Sunday. Remember, there was this, uh, the context of this whole passage is there was this confusion in churches between one group who said, it's enough to believe the gospel of Jesus, which is true, but then there was another group who was still confused about the gospel, and they said, no, you have to believe the gospel of Jesus and also obey all of the Old Testament rules and regulations. If you do that, then you're saved. And they were wrong. The Apostle Paul says, don't listen to that group. They're trying to add a whole bunch of religious performance to your salvation. And he calls them enemies of the cross of Christ. Strong language. These were people inside the church. They might have been members. They might have called themselves Christians. In fact, I'm sure they did. But he says they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Why enemies? Because they're preaching a message. They're advancing a philosophy of life that is contrary to the gospel. The gospel says Jesus did it. That's enough. Believe him and bank on him. They were saying believe him and do a bunch of other stuff. That's a different message. It undermines the gospel. Therefore, they're enemies. He says of the cross, don't follow them. Learn to distinguish between them and those who are really pursuing Jesus in a gospel-centered way. In verse 19, he says of these people, their end is destruction. He says, what he's saying there is their philosophy leads you to hell. If you keep listening to people who tell you that you have to perform good enough for God and that's how you get to heaven, it won't lead you to heaven. It leads you to hell. Only the salvation that is freely available in Jesus, the Bible says, will lead us to heaven. So if you don't listen to that, you're, you're messed up. You're, you're headed to hell. That's not where you want to go. Don't follow those people because their end is eternal destruction. He says they are people whose God is their belly. Which, by the way, I just have to pause here for no good reason and say that is the most epic phrase in the entire New Testament. <laughs> I have always loved that. Their God is their belly. That is genius. What's he saying? Your, your appetites, your feelings, your desires, they can rule you. You can be ruled by your desires or you can be ruled by the love of Christ. But you see, when my, my appetites, my belly, when those desires rule me, when my feelings define who and what I am and my desires and the things I want shape the course of my life, then at that point, I'm essentially following and serving and, as it were, worshiping my own feelings and my own desires. My God is my feelings. My God is my belly. In the case of these people he's talking about, it was their pride, their even though they were deeply religious people on the surface, at their core, they were people who wanted to say, I earned my own way. God accepts me because I deserve it. 
And he says, that is the heart of sin right there. Although they look religious on the outside, they're just serving their own pride. Their God is their belly. And finally, he says, they glory in their shame because their minds are set on earthly things. Religious performance and following rules. These are people who celebrate the religious lifestyle that the Apostle Paul used to celebrate, but he now calls trash. He says, it's rubbish. And here they are still rolling around in the city dump and saying, look how awesome we are. And he's saying, they should be ashamed of that because the grace of God is so much better. Don't follow people who aren't really pursuing Christ, even on the surface. Learn to distinguish between those who, although they're far from perfect, they're basically fundamentally dedicated to pursuing as much of the life that Jesus gives as possible, on the one hand, and distinguishing between them and those who, although they call themselves Christians, they really like the trappings of church and the trappings of the gospel, but they're basically living out the values of their surrounding culture. Every church in the world has both kinds of people in it. Learn to distinguish. Find some mentors. And by the way, one pastoral exhortation as we turn to a close here, if I could. When you find people who you believe are really pursuing Jesus for all they're worth and you're dealing with a situation in your life and you're like, can I talk with you about this? How have you handled this kind of thing before? And they tell you something you don't want to hear, that's when you especially listen to them. That's when you especially listen to them. Oh, it's hard in the short run but it may be the path to life in the long run. It is so heartbreaking. I've seen it over and over again in church ministry where good-hearted Christian people get involved in certain uh, patterns of sin or certain behaviors that really aren't right and people start telling them, I don't think that's right and they begin to cut themselves off from those people. And they'll say, you know, whatever, you're, you're judging me or they'll come up with it. Whatever they're feeling is happening, but it's just, it, I don't want to listen to you anymore. I want to talk to people who tell me I'm okay when I'm actually not okay. The people who love you the most will say, keep pursuing the life of Jesus. No matter how much it hurts now, you will win in the end. Don't get knocked off course. Let me help you stay on course. The gospel anchors us in terms of our life's ambition. And the more we become a gospel-centered people as a church, the more we will orient everything in our lives toward experiencing as much of the resurrection life of Jesus as we possibly can. I want to pray as a church, I'd like to ask you to stand. We're going to go from prayer into musical worship. So would you stand with me, please, as a congregation in solidarity as I pray, pray with me, and let's invite God to transform our hearts. Father, I want to thank you for the good word that you have provided for us. Your word is good. It is clear. It is wise. It leads to life. And sometimes, like a major surgical procedure, the path to life is a little rough at first. But you are so good to confront our sinful patterns of thinking, not to condemn us. You've already taken our condemnation for us, but to invite us to experience the life that we can only find in you. I pray that I and we as a church community would not settle for lesser ambitions like hedonistic fun that we would not settle for the lesser ambition of career or financial success that we would not settle for the lesser ambition of personal achievement or self-actualization but Jesus that those of us who are your people would settle for nothing less than the life you have provided for us flip Jesus our motivations upside down where they need to be flipped 
that we wouldn't spend our lives trying to achieve something we don't currently possess, but rather that we would spend our lives reaching and stretching for the fullest possible experience of the life you've already given to us. I pray for those in this room who don't have a personal relationship with you as their God and their Savior. And I pray that in your gracious and compassionate way, you would meet them in their moment of need, their pains, their feelings, their questions, their fears, and help them to see you for the God you are, the one who laid everything down so that they have no fear but to lay everything down and give their lives to you and find true life. May this be a church that you use to introduce many people to you, to usher many people into eternal life. Father, I want to pray as we've talked about for our brothers and sisters in South Sudan this morning. We pray for them and the continued corruption in that country and the tribal fighting that takes place there that robs so many people of their security and sometimes of their life. We pray for stability and security in that nation. We pray that the gospel would go forth strongly. We pray for the ministry of our partner organization, SEA Partners, for Henry Okumu, who leads that organization. Give him wisdom, give him vision. God, give him perseverance to continue to minister the gospel in a tough place. For the school that is operating there and the hundreds of children who have now passed through its doors over the last several years, we pray, Jesus, that they would be transformed by the gospel. And now that many of them are well into their teen years and approaching young adulthood, we pray that they would enter their communities, their government, their churches, and their society as gospel-transformed men and women who have the skills not only to provide medical care and education and the basic necessities of life, but have the lives to put the gospel on display. And we pray for that school and its students and that through them, you would let the gospel shine in that community. We thank you for the privilege of helping support that school and be there with them. We pray now for ourselves and ask that you would shine the light of the same gospel in our community for our good and for your glory. In Christ Jesus' name we pray.